I find it very exciting when I go to a war games store and I'm like, ooh, some things. Let me look at yeah. all the things. That's a very exciting moment. But you can't do that most of the time. And even when you go out to town with like your family, like maybe you sneak into the bookshop because they're like, ooh, some things. And with Gaslands, <laughs> like you're at the supermarket and you're like, ooh, some things. <laughs> like what you're there with your bacon and your eggs. And you're like, ah, some hobby thinking stuff can happen yeah. here. And that I think was really, um, that was more magical than I was expecting. Gaslands had a huge impact when it came on the scene. It was a game that used matchbox cars, your table. It had elegant rules that made sense. And above all, the game is fun. Now there's talk that Billion Sons could be another huge innovation. So I had to sit down with Mike Hutchinson. Mike and I talked about where the concept of Gaslands came from, his process, his decision-making, and how he goes from idea to completed game. We also talk about Billion Sons and the work he's doing with Blaster. Those of you that are Malifaux fans, I think you'll find it interesting, his connection with the game. If you look in the show notes for this, you'll see links to Gasland's legacy. In this episode, we talk about it, but since recording it, it has come out. I also want to give a quick shout out to two of our newest patrons, Ryan Sell and Kyle B. We had a great time. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Mike. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're talking to Mike Hutchinson from Planet Smasher Games. Now, there appear to be two types of mini gamers out there those that gush about the game Gaslands when it comes up, and those that haven't heard about it yet. Mike's game of battling matchbox scaled vehicles has a rabid fan base. His newest game, A Billion Suns, is already creating quite a buzz. So, Mike, welcome to the third floor. Hello there. So, um, you unfortunately have to tell a story that I'm sure you have told many a time, which is uh, at some point, Mike had no idea you could roll dice and push models around a table and uh, say pew pew. So I'd be curious, what was the day before and what was the day after? So how did you first like just find out there's such thing as tabletop gaming? I'll be honest with you, it runs extremely deep and early. So uh, okay. <laughs> my dad was a big, he was the youngest of three, and uh, he was a big board game player, even when he was a kid back in, I guess, in, this, in the sort of 60s. And so he uh, brought from his, uh, from his parents' house a, a collection of Waddington board games when we were super small. And in there was a copy of Battle of Little Bighorn which I think is a Waddington game. I could be wrong about that. I haven't checked for a while. And in it, you get a bunch of cowboys and Indians. And um, it's a it's essentially like a little sort of uh, squares mini war game where Custer's in the middle oh, no and you've got to defend the... Uh, you got to, you know, do his last stand and one player takes the Native Americans and one person takes the, uh, the General Custer's guys. And I suppose that 
like I must have been playing that when I was five or six. So that's get probably, out of here. Yeah, and that's it's it's like you know, roll a dice, get a five to 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 eliminate a an infantryman or something. Maybe maybe fours to kill infantry and fives to kill. Anyway, so that's where it begins. It begins very, very deep and early. With uh, and I still like one little part of me wants to sort of recreate that board game like yeah. myself for you know buy some of the most glorious foundry minis, paint them up to the best of my ability, and like recreate that for my daughters so that they have that same experience. But um, yeah, so that's where it began. So it's, it's an interesting concept for a game because we kind of know how the story ends. But, <laughs> but was there times when uh, Custard would win? Well, isn't that, isn't that the charm of all historical gaming? Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Oddly, oddly, actually, it didn't lead to a long-term passion in historical gaming. My, um, I think my second jumping-off point was uh, a copy of Hero Quest, I think was the earliest oh, thing wow. beyond that. And I th- like at that point... You know, I didn't know about Games Workshop and sort of the that side of the hobby, like the deeper side of the hobby. But that thing was a, a an appropriate gift for a nine year old or a ten year old. So I guess I got that one Christmas and fell into that and never never came out again. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, there's I think there's a a certain stable of games that are often end up being referenced as kind of that's what that's when I got hooked. And Hero Quest is a very common one that you hear. Um, uh, have you gone back and and played it? Uh, no, I, I, I went back and found my box and it is mostly there, um, complete with like hilarious, um, initial miniature painting attempts where skeletons (laughs) are painted with like airfix, uh, enamel paints. Um, so they aren't ever, they aren't ever getting repainted. Um, no, I haven't played the game. We, we talked in my, in my tabletop gaming, in my tabletop simulator, uh, group recently about maybe going back and, and having a having a nostalgic crack at it. But no, I have no idea whether it's any good still. I can't imagine it's terrible. I it's mean, not, actually. That is surprisingly, I expected when I got to play it again that I was that it was just going to be a slog, right? That, uh, you know, it wouldn't have the streamlined modern sensibilities. Uh, but it's still surprisingly engaging. So it wasn't wasn't just nostalgia that uh, uh, allowed me to keep enjoying it. So you, you jump from you know, being five years old, playing around with really your first exposure to roll some dice and, uh, and, and, you know, a rule set and things like that. Hero Quest sets the hook. What happens after that, Mike? Um, uh, what happens after Hero Quest? When, and if you look back, old man Mike looks back and says, you know, this, this was the time where I knew it was going to be more than, you know, just, just a, a fleeting interest. Um, was there something happened later that um, it, it, you could... No, it was all just, it was all just a, a continuous snowballing, unavoidable black <laughs> hole. Because after, <laughs> after um, Battle of Little Bighorn, um, I got into Airfix kits when I was about seven or eight. And, um, you know, I rem- like w- something burned very, very brightly into my early memories is the utter frustration of realizing that I had completed my incredible um, modern fighter, but I'd stuck the little canopy on before sticking in the <laughs> little crew member in his seat. And of, of course, course, you're using polystyrene cement, so you're not getting that, can- uh, that, that canopy back off. And I, like, I genuinely, I, the red mist descended, and I recall to this day stamping that airfix kit to death, realizing that it wasn't perfect and therefore it, it, it didn't need to exist. Um, that's funny. <laughs> well, I couldn't fly anywhere. I didn't have a pilot. Exactly. <laughs> well, you spent because I, I spent I, I poured hours and hours into that, and you you know you want to do a good job on the hot. The for me, one of the the joys of the hobby is 
is that crafting and that model making and doing the thing that, that's the best that you can. Um, I, I'm pleased to say I don't think I've ever destroyed anything else in a fit of rage. That was clearly an early learning experience, learning to manage my emotions when it came to failed hobby projects. So inevitably, armchair uh, psychologist Craig uh, <laughs> is, gonna, is going to ask, is that also a sign of Mike's desire for perfection? Well, um, indeed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and so I think from, from a combination of my dad's love of, uh, like, my dad's kind of sharing of his passion for playing board games every weekend um, and uh, my growing love of sticking my fingers together, um, when I discovered Hero Crest, when I discovered the Games Workshop, that was around the corner from my grandparents' house in oh, right. uh, the UK. I, I guess I picked up um, the, the there was one, one of the one of the Space Crusades was involved. I'm not even sure which one it was because I still have little pieces of the yellow heavy weapons and the and the the brightly coloured dreadnought things. Sure. So I know that I had it, but that's the only way that I know that I had it. <laughs> that's the only proof. <laughs> that's the only proof I had. But back back in those days, and, and my my kind of. Uh, uh, sort of early early and mid teens was a it was a period of gw and also for for me and my friends where there were so many games being released like man of war was there epic was there oh, right. um you know advanced hero quest and advanced uh space crusade were there and um we just Within the realms of what our pocket money could afford, we were just in love with dabbling with all of them. And so between me and my my really good buddy, John Brindley, we would try and play the big games like like Warhammer Fantasy a little bit or, or 40k a little bit, but we'd play it pretty small scale because that's that's all we could afford. But we we really did enjoy like, you know, one of us would get Man of War and the other one would get um, Mighty Empires and then we'd go around and, we, and we'd play them. And so I kind of really fell in love with both playing lots of different systems and learning lots of different systems. And um, be because I treated it a bit like a board game collection because I was used to cracking open a new game and learning right. the rules and playing it through. So it never felt weird to just be flitting from one thing to another. But because the pocket money was short, the, um, we also had to do a lot of our own heavy lifting. And so when none of us could afford like the 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 sort of late to um, the late period Space Fleet miniatures, we just... Uh, or the game, rather. We just made up our own rules for Space Fleet and we made up our own rules for um, how to join, uh, you know, how to join what we thought um, Necromunda should work like. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just did a, did a lot of our own sort of um, house ruling and just enthusiastic being teenagers. And I suppose that's that's kind of where I never... I never thought at the time that I would get a game published, but I was so um, in love with the whole artifacts of the rule books that I still have little rule books that I created in Microsoft Publisher when I must have been about 16 or 17. Um, so, yeah, so I was, you know, I was on the track even in, even in the way back. Well, that, that answered my next question, which is when did you see your tra self transition, right? And it sounds like that you were dabbling and tinkering right from the beginning. Um, now, at this point, we usually see one of two paths, which is... <laughs> yeah, I I'm going to be one of these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, finished, I finished high school um, and I took a break. And then I rediscovered games 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, or I, 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 it was always a part of my life. Um, so I'd be curious which, which lane you fit in. It's very much the former. And actually there was a moment of like exorcism where I took every lead and plastic miniature that I possessed and I gave them to some friends of mine. 
and those have been never seen again apart from like a couple of couple of converted chaos warriors that about 15 years later my one of my other friends was like you gave me these to keep hold of do you want them back and i was like oh my children <laughs> um so that was sad i wish i hadn't done that because my parents had plenty of room in their loft they could have kept it but it was a it was a moment of like okay this was you know this was part of my childhood and i'm going right. to move on and i'm going to learn you know learn how to play the bass guitar and uh, try and attract women and so <laughs> that's what I did. And then I got married and then we started playing some board games and, um, I tumbled very gently back into wargaming through, yep. um, miniature painting. So we're playing a lot of board games. I was kind of getting into it, started painting some figures, thought, Oh, you know what? I never ever managed to finish a painted army. So I bought a six millimeter goblin army. Cause I was like, I bet you I can finish that. And then I finished it and it was complete and I laid it out in front of me. And obviously it was absolutely tiddly, but Sure. The sense of satisfaction from seeing this little six mil goblin army. I was like, okay, I'm done. We're doomed. And into the <laughs> into the rabbit hole I fell again. That was about that was about ten or twelve years ago. So after so you finish your goblin army. Mm. You've you've reignited, right? A, a childhood passion. You're now an adult. Um, God forbid uh you have less constraints on the pocketbook as you did as a kid. Um, and you're able to enjoy enjoy it at a different level. When does the designer come back to life? Um, so we hear the player come back to life. When does the designer go, I can do better or I want to try something new? Um, it was, it was a combination of factors, but one of the, one of the key factors was, um, the, uh, the way that I fell most heavily into playing miniature gaming was I found a, a, a gang of guys, there, there's a, there's a, Wargaming club in Canterbury, which um, is is where I do a lot of my playtesting and stuff, and so I started hanging out there. And some of the guys were also doing a separate, smaller session on a Saturday morning. And it happened to be like four doors down from where I was living in in a scout hut, four doors down from where I was living. So I was like, "Well, this is just That's mana easy. from heaven. I will definitely do this. This is an instruction." Um, and so what we ended up doing is there was normally five or six of us, and so we would get out. Uh, and we had a whole hall to ourselves. So we would get a, a really large, maybe um, you know, 10 or 12 by four table. And then we would put out all of the miniatures that we owned, broadly speaking. Um, and we'd play sort of 10 to 12,000 point aside uh, Warhammer fantasy battle uh, games with three of us on each side. And we wow. had to invent some, and the game, the game sort of does want you to play like that in a way like it's excited that you want to play that way but the magic system kind of breaks down and the victory right. conditions aren't always amazing and the games can take quite a long time so i guess from trying to fix the magic dice system to trying to come up with new ways to make a multiplayer version of fantasy battle work more excitingly um during those saturday mornings to uh you know inventing kind of campaign systems to you know because we had a lot of time and we enjoyed it. So I guess that's where like a lot of it came from was it started to be clear that I, I was really excited about writing, you know, I wrote 20 different scenarios for um, Fancy Battle during that period. Uh, I know exactly it was 20 because I created a, a D20 table. Um, <laughs> and I guess as we got as we got to as we got to the point where the old, the old world was being destroyed by GW and we were sort of entering the end times. Um, that 
coincided with some particularly frustrating experiences with Fantasy Battle where we'd spent a long time figuring out specific combats because it wasn't clear when somebody declared a challenge where they were going to move to in the front rank. And there was all this faff and fiddling. And I realized that we probably should have been playing a different game because we had just buckets of models and we just wanted sweeping movements of troops. And I, I guess... At that moment, I thought, you know what? I bet you I could write a game that's not better, but is better at doing what we're trying to do here. And so, right, I, better fit. Yeah. yeah. And so I dived into if I was going to write a fantasy rank and flank game, what would it be like? And I, I'm very, I have a low tolerance for complexity, so I wanted something that was a, a, a lot more generic and and faster play. And so I started working on that, and I thought, this is it. I'm gonna. This is this is this is going to be my this is going to be my thing, and I'm gonna you know everyone's going to play it. And, um, yeah. And so that, that kind of reignited a, like that, that, that brought together the fact that I was already sort of designing with a sort of an urgency where I was like, well, if you're going to publish a fantasy game, it's got to be the the moment when fantasy battle disappears and everyone's looking for the next thing. So that kind of created (laughs) a a sense of maybe a false sense of urgency, but at least I I started to, to think, well, if I can get this thing finished and I can start taking it out to publishers, like this is the moment where somebody might consider it. And I did find a couple of people who, did consider it, but um, just got a lot of rejections and that thing never got published. Um, so what what was the, f- I mean, so what was your reaction at that point? Was was there frustration? Was there doubt? Or it was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm not done. Uh, I'm going to do something else. Well, the 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 best the best rejection I got was from Offspray and Phil Smith at Offspray was kind enough to send me a polite email explaining why like he quite liked the look of it, but he he explained why they weren't going to pick it up because they had um, Dragons Rampant about to come out, um, which obviously hadn't been announced. So I didn't know that. And if you and and actually Dragons Rampant is trying to do exactly what Hobgoblin, which was the name of the game, is trying to do, which is provide some quite generic framework, a much faster play system, and um, yeah, and so they didn't need it. And and uh, and I was like cool is there anything that you are looking for and they were like no no we don't really like to push designers into any particular area um but because i'd been writing all these games and um pushing myself to finish things i had put up on my own website a few pdfs of different games um that were in various states of completion and one of them was uh, a thing called gaslands colon highway uh, because gaslands was always like was already like a necromunda skirmish game ripoff that i'd written and so gaslands highway he flipped through and went hey this is kind of interesting i was thinking about maybe doing a a car game um You'd have to you'd have to make it a bit longer though because it's only eight pages. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. I can write more pages. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, and then sort of explain to him how, oh yes, no, I'm you know very very keen on writing small prototype games and firing them out into space until I anyway. But yeah, so I convinced him that I was a serious game designer and not just a, an eight page hack, which of course nobody had any evidence of, including myself. So it was very decent of him to, to, to trust me on that one. Oh, that's very cool. So it was it was via that rejection that actually kind of gave birth to you getting published and good. And of course, we've got um, uh, all kinds of stuff to talk about with Gaslands itself, um, which we'll do after the break. So the Insider Insights series allows me to talk to developers, designers, artists, writers and industry insiders about their creative process and how they approach their work. Now, today, I hope to find out the origins of Gaslands, which we've already kind of hinted at. And of course, the new game, Billion Sons. We're going to dig into Mike's design process, his philosophy and approach. And I also want to hear about his blaster anthology that he's been publishing with one of the friends of the show, Ash Barker. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk Gaslands.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Keith Suderman, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. You'll never mistake me for a competitive player, but I really enjoy the analysis and the advice I get from Tabletop Talk. You should be a patron, too. Head on over to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or just click the link in the show notes below. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is. We won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to some of the original patrons that started us on this journey. Special thanks to Jesse Ellis, Sam Newman, Nick Westbrook, Jim Ortiz, Kevin Smith, Keith Suderman, Matthew Riddle, Dane Leergaard, Jeremy Peace, Bookie Gunner, Chris Blue, Voslav, Kim Otto Nielsen, Rolf Randall, John Haas, Cody Hyatt, Michael Roper, Ambrose Ingram, Pudgy Hobbit, Kaiser and Crimson, Brandon Sommer, Jason Reddy, Jason Burry, Kylie Woodland, Brian Schooner, Alan Voltz, and Owen. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis, and I appreciate it. So you had this eight-page concept, maybe is the way to put it, or, I mean, was the eight pages playable? Yeah, it was playable. Um, I'd taken it to... uh... A friend of mine was running a kind of weekend gaming convention for his mates, and so I'd taken it down there, and we'd played it with maybe six or eight guys um over that weekend a couple of times it was it was fine like they were they were friends of mine so they were pretty generous about it um but yeah no it was playable and so now you hear back from osprey they say you've got something here but it needs to be meatier it needs to be more what's the next step mike hmm what was the next step i suppose the the way that i pitched 
and the way that I have since pitched pitched other games uh, the way that I pitched uh, Hobgoblin was to write a chapter list so I guess I must have started by doing that and sort of breaking down okay crumbs I have to attack this project so I broke it down into a chapter list and sort of called out what it was that I thought I was going to put into the book in terms of structure because also I knew that it was going to be now I knew it was going to be a 96 page Osprey blue book that like introduced some format constraints which I was interested to explore but then I guess I dived straight into a process of defining more clearly the principles for the game, some design principles, um, which honestly I think initially might have been partly because I needed some content for my website. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a good, easy thing that I can start with that doesn't talk about the game, but actually ended up being incredibly <laughs> useful. And I've done in, in most of my design since. So setting those principles up front about how um, how I wanted the game to broadly function like it had to be it had to be biasing towards chaos and fun over over simulation it needed to replace moments of nothingness with moments of somethingness and I, I, they're all still listed on my on my uh, blog buried deep at the bottom and then i started thinking a lot about um where the mechanics of the game needed to be like where just like where all the crumminess was and where i thought some of the fun that needed to be uh, tapped into um and I actually, actually, quite early on, um, it, it might not be it might not be fashionable to bring him up anymore. But um, what's his name? Louis C.K. Um, has a. So I was watching I was watching a documentary about a guy speaking to a bunch of stand up comedians and about their process and about the way that they uh, develop amazing shows. And there was this really interesting bit where Louis C.K. said what he does when he plans a show is he writes a bunch of jokes and then he makes the last joke absolutely the best that he can make it so that he can definitely finish on that joke and he can walk out and everyone's like this is the greatest comedian i've ever seen so he, he hones and hones and hones that final joke and then he moves it to the front of the show oh, and now he's got another last joke and now he has to make that the absolute show ending like and then he just keeps doing that and he moves that one to the front and he moves and i i kind of caught on that idea of being like amazing okay so this is a driving game so the driving has to be the best that i can make it okay so we've made the driving really fun okay but the turn sequence doesn't work really well okay so we have to make the turn sequence really well okay the shooting is rubbish okay so let's make the shooting and like i just kept going through this this way of going like everything's fine it's okay in the eight page but like what needs to be amazing and then iterating through and, and and every time everything was like one level i was like okay great let's make something spike up and make it better now that's better everything else has to come up to that level so yeah conceptually at least that's how i was sort of thinking about attacking it so so that's interesting so it sounds like you almost put i don't i don't i'm trying to think of the right word for me because this is very interesting to me it's not constraints and it's not mantras but i mean it's it's just goals right it's just like this is how i want it to look and feel right so not not i wanted to use six-sided dice not that i want you know there to be simultaneous actions and things like that nothing mechanical at all you just say this is this is the look and feel that i'm going for and it sounds like that not only gives you some goals but it also sets some guardrails in the process is that accurate Yes, you've actually reminded me of something I'd completely forgotten about, which is actually what happened almost the day that I got the the notice from Offspray that they were thinking about picking the game up. I took all of the games and the books and the DVDs and uh, of, of the things that were relevant to, to Gaslands, and I put them all out on my dining room table, and I took a photo of them, like like a sort of physical what's the word um mood board and so there was a copy of um you know there was there was a copy of uh 
Thunder Road and there was a copy of, uh, you know, other sort of exciting, uh, explodey games that I wanted to see. And there was a copy of Mad Max and there was, a, you know, some copies of, uh, of, some, of some Judge Dredd comics and stuff. And so I guess much, much less starting from a place of I want there to be D6s and this kind of a mechanic and more like this is what I want this game to smell like. It needs to smell right. like the Austria, the Australian uh, Outback and it needs to smell like Death Wraiths with Jason Statham in it. And that's that's the flavor that has to come through. So now that you've got something like that, which um, how often do you catch yourself going, all right, I need to go back, look at my dream board and, and, and have I gone astray? Um, I suppose this is where having phenomenal collaborators comes in. So I have two really challenging collaborators, and I mean that in the most positive way. Uh, my good old buddy, John, who was the guy that we used to buy Man of War and um, Mighty Empires and so on. And one of my more recent good buddies, Glenn, who I now um, spend a lot of time making videos and uh, and talking about games with as well. Um, he runs a company called uh, man of kent games uh, and he started putting out his own games as well and they're both really challenging but for different reasons so john is will not let something be a narrative violation and will not accept something being less cool than it could potentially be so even really early doors when we were talking about cars driving around and pulling wheelies in the in the desert and blowing each other up he was like that's fine but it's kind of not good enough like what if what if we mix this with formula one racing and there are teams and there's like purposes to the things and i was like oh yeah and then we started talking about well maybe there's like war rigs that are dragging the teams from one city to another and like there's just yeah and so he he's he's very much like why is this not cooler you know you're not trying hard enough and then glenn is the other side of the coin where he's like well this game i i can just bend this out of shape or like this is a these are a set of options that i can solve for like you've given me not enough you know this this, this, too, this is too obvious or just like these mechanics when i interact in this way there was one point genuinely um this is in hobgoblin actually not in gaslands but there was one point where i had simplified the way that uh rank and flank units pivot because i was like pivoting is faffy let's do this and he, and he found some exploit in the way that i had simplified the things where he could teleport like 60 I inches by like doing something weird by like reforming and then i was like oh god you're so annoying but it, it means that you know when you release a game there are significantly fewer people who go all oh, right so i can just use geometry to bend space in your game right so that's neat so you've got you've got a neat uh like friend critic that handles the mechanics that knows how to break games, knows how to solve games, which is a, that's a, that's gotta be an immense resource yeah, for you. And then you have somebody who's keeps you honest mm -hmm. from, from a narrative standpoint and whatnot. So I'd be curious. Um, you, you've already told me kind of a situation mechanically where you got called out. Was there any, any point in the iterations of Gaslands that you remember, um, and I already forgot your first buddy's name, and I apologize. Uh, John, John. John. Yeah, John. Was there a time that John came to you and ended up pissing you off? You know, said, you know, this isn't good enough. This is not enough. And you're like, you know what, John, screw you. It's pretty <laughs> damn good. <laughs> like, do you can you think of a time um, where that happened? Uh, I mean, it, it's happened really recently on another project. I can't re recall a time off the top of my head on Gaslands, but to give an okay. example of, of how this has happened recently. So... We can maybe get into this later, but Volume 2 of Blaster, which we'll explain what that is later. Volume 2 has got a game that I wrote called Mystic Skies, which is extremely exciting. And I, I'm, we can talk more about that, but it's really cool. And in that game, 
you're a magic carpet wizard zooming around the desert using Gaslands templates. And in that game, <laughs> monsters appear. And uh, in my head, the monsters that spawn are like a kind of wandering monster table from from Dungeons and Dragons. Um, the game is sort of ripped off um, magic carpet from Bullfrog, uh, the computer game from the 90s. And in that, lots of monsters appear and so on. And in like this was one moment where I was like, you roll on a table and some monsters appear. And I chose some quite generic names for the monsters. Have you roll a one, some beasts appear and if you roll a two some uh, archers appear and if you roll a six a monstrous beast appears in order to mean that like didn't matter what miniatures you had you could use whatever cool miniatures that roughly fit that and i had a very like protracted and frustrating discussion with him because he was like well like who wants to put a bunch of dogs on the table like that's rubbish can't they just be like start with dragons and it gets cooler from there <laughs> it's like this is your game. Like you Take the last joke, make it the first yeah. joke. Yeah, yeah. Like, make, make the monsters the first thing that happens and make everything else cooler than the monster. And I was like, well, as, a, as, a, as the game designer, like the role of the game designer is to make, a, to make a game that functions for players and to make sure that it all hangs together from like a, the vision of what the game is supposed to be and what it's supposed to smell like. And I felt like the... The access to the game would be really damaged by this decision. And although it might theoretically be cooler, um, you, you know, it, it means that I have to have 12 dragon models and that's un unachievable from a player point of view. So, like, although it's not necessarily the coolest thing in the world to have a little group of piggies or doggies as your lowest thing, like, there's lots of fun models. That's a hobby challenge. I probably have them already. Maybe there's an excuse to finish a, a unit that I had for some other game that I didn't got. So there's always a tension, and the same is true on the mechanical side with Glenn, where he'd be like, there's a way of doing this that is more crunchy or more mechanically satisfying or maybe provides more emergent options, but I have to sort of make a call on and say, yeah, but it only makes sense to somebody who thinks that, like, Clue the board game is, um, you know, like something that you win every time or you're a, or you're a, an, an absolute idiot. Um, because right. because he's, a, he's a logical <laughs> computer and... Um, in many cases, I have to know what the game is doing before I can bring some elements to um, John or Glenn because they will punch holes in it and I won't know whether those are the right holes or the wrong holes. Yeah. Well, it's neat, it's neat that you've got, you know, two angels on two different shoulders that, that are constantly whispering in your ear from two completely different perspectives. So that's fascinating. So I'd be curious because I'm, I'm a huge fan of Gaslands. Um, in fact, uh, one of the, I have introduced at least five people to miniature gaming through Gaslands. Wow, awesome. Which is which is cool. Um, and these are people that had no interest in Guild Ball, no interest in, you know, 40K when I played 40K, but I but I bust out some Matchbox cars, and they're like, okay, uh, this is cool. And um, it's something that th I think that um, we're going to probably learn a little bit more about um, is that, you know, the, the it's very easy to explain the game. Mm. But that doesn't make, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have the, the, the core decision making that I require, right? Because if I love a game, I need it to be I need it to be simple, but I need my decisions to matter. And Gaslands does that. Plus, it feels cool too. Mm. But um, so there, there's a lot of smoke that you can I've uh, <laughs> <laughs> blown up there for you. How's that smell? Why thank you, sir. <laughs> but no, um, sorry, I really appreciate be, it. <laughs> I would be curious though. I mean, I know what the finished product looked like, right? Because I've consumed it. If I were to go back to that eight page, eight page document, how many? How how far back could I go? So what are things that I would see in that eight-page document that through all of these iterations, but with Glenn and, Glenn and John yelling in one ear and yelling in the other ear, did anything survive or is it did it become a different game? 
Um, mechanically, if you look back through the very, very early versions of it, shadows of everything are there, but almost right. nothing is the same. So the templates that we used in the first playtest, honestly, were just X-wing templates. I <laughs> sure <laughs> because that's what we had. That's what we had to hand. So everything was forty-five and ninety rather than degrees of thirty. Um, the like skid dice. Um, sort of existed but there was it was much more of a negative punishment mechanic where you know when you tried to go too fast or turn too quickly you had to make checks to see whether you were going to skid uh and so there's a, there's a there's a couple of weirdnesses around the language of skid dice which if i had my time again i would maybe tidy up but that come from like one of the things that people mistake sometimes is that they hit they see that spin result and they go well that must be a bad thing and then after about a game and a half they go oh it's not a bad thing it's it's sometimes a bad thing but it's very rarely a bad thing um and that sort of surprises people which means it's probably the wrong name for it um uh combat was just the system from um um thunder road so you had to roll a four to hit a light vehicle a five to hit a medium vehicle and a six to hit a heavy vehicle there was a tire mechanic that was ripped off the formula one waddington board game so that was a, that was one of those moments where um having collaborators where i had a i had a three three dials on the front of every car there was what speed are you going how much hull have you got and um what's your your current tire level and at some point pretty early on, I think it was John said, there's three numbers here. Why? Can't they just be two? And I was like, wow, there definitely probably can be two. Um, although it reemerged uh, actually as hazard tokens. So that that third oh, economy, okay. that third economy did did still survive. It just mutated. Um, yeah. So there's a, there was a lot of there was a lot of like stubs of things that hadn't yet been explored. Um and certainly like some of the big some of the big kind of pieces about the depth of the game like the sponsors the audience vote mechanics you know the scenarios like none of that was there that's all that's all paprika that got sprinkled on later <laughs> so it's you know and we've kind of talked about it a little bit mike where you know you build a little bit here you, you boost up this this aspect of the game you boost up another aspect of the game it sounds like a little bit you know you re you replace the robot and at the end it's a completely new robot with mm. all new parts it's not the same robot that you started with one thing that I hear a lot when I talk to designers, though, is what was taken away that made the game? So a common thing I hear is, you know, we were going, we're going. And sometimes it happens right before the very end where there there was just something that was always bugging them. And then once they cut it away, once they dropped something, then it all all gelled. It all just clicked. It, it was there something in Gaslands that was like that, that something that had persisted for many iterations that you just woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to try it without this. And all of a sudden you were like, holy crap, I, the, you know, it's, you know, twice as good now. Yes. So there was, there was a, there's a, there's a, there's a section in one of my Ringman game design notebooks from, from this sort of mid to late development period on Gaslands. And there is page after page of angry ballpoint scrawling of me trying to figure out why the skid dice system doesn't work. There was something, I'm, I can't remember exactly what was wrong with it, but it was broadly speaking that the more skid dice I rolled, the worse, like the more likely I got bad results because there were these like uncancelable hazard results that 
yeah, the more dice you rolled, the worse you were. And I was like, there was something mathematically broken with the skid dice system. And I was scratching around trying to get different ways and turning the numbers left and right and making, okay, maybe a, maybe a, you know, maybe a performance car is a handling one. Maybe handling is a thing that you roll under, like just trying to fix all of these different ideas to the wall to see what would happen. And I think there was just a moment that I wrote, what if you have to resolve all of the dice and boom, something magical happened because at that point it became this push your luck system and this sort of like bidding against yourself. And honestly, that element, which feels so obvious and central to the game now was really late on in the development. And it was simply just because the, the, the numbers didn't add up on the handling stat. Um, Isn't that something? Hmm. Very, very interesting. So now you've, unleashed it um the game is out there it's published people start picking it up um was it a slow burn or was 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 it grabbed up pretty quickly um so were you disappointed with the adoption level of the game or did it surprise you um i had no expectations so i had nothing to be disappointed about i guess is the first thing um i'd also spent a long time building the community around the game in open public beta so i knew that about 300 people were gonna buy the book so i felt okay <laughs> about that because we had about 350 people on the forum and you know of those maybe 50 people were posting occasionally and you know 20 of them were, were pretty active and well, let's take let, let's stop right there then mike how did that get built right because that's a that's a that's a huge stable so how did you how did that happen crumbs i'm not certain i'm not certain how i so uh, it was clear it was clear to me quite early on that i wanted to put together a website put together a facebook group put together a twitter account and i guess i just put in the hours of like making sure that i was finding the right forums and finding the right communities and saying hey i'm working on this thing and do you know what you can download it for free because it's in open beta and so if you want to come and have a look and i guess people had a look and maybe you know the beginnings of the kind of organic gaslands thing happened which is they thought it was kind of cool and they showed it to one one person and so we got right. you know another person on the site another person on the forum um but so, yeah, I think the fact that like the fact that it was like it was attached to the word offspray war game. So it was like it was going to be it was going to be legitimate and it was vaguely visible. And then it was free and open and you could come and have a look and play. I think it was enough to drag in an early small snowball of people. Um, um, but I think also just putting in the work to just keep telling people about it. And I, I guess actually I did a lot of seems so weird to say this now i did a lot of going to gaming conventions and setting the game up and showing people <laughs> what are those again <laughs> yeah um yeah. but so but that had to be encouraging for you though mike to, i mean to, to have an unreleased game you're putting out beta rules that are changing and iterating over time yet you're building a community around that i, I would imagine that gave you some inclination that this you know th th there's a market I mean, I guess so, but again, I had no benchmarks. I didn't know what else. Like, I, I one of the reasons that I ran an open beta was I was involved um, tangentially in the Malifaux open beta for second edition. Like, there was a few people who were really involved at my club, and so we kind of got all the stuff as it was coming out and did a bunch of playtesting and things. And I don't know how many people were in that community. I'm guessing, you know, you know, maybe a thousand or multiple thousands, and that's a smallish, small to medium game anyway. So I guess I thought, like, well, I'm way down the end of that. Like, I feel great about 350 people. That feels like the beginning of a really strong community. And I, I think I can build this. I think I can do something with this. And so to answer your original question, it was from there still quite a slow build. So it wasn't day one of Gaslands, like poof, everybody exploded. 
But, um, you know, it was a new off three book, so it was visible and people picked it up. And what I liked was the first few months were really quite a steady growth of traffic to the website, new members in the Facebook group. And what, uh, you know, the way that I was showing that back to Osprey was I was taking screenshots of those analytics and going, look at this slow and steady growth. This is going to be incredible. Like there's no, this isn't one and done. We're, uh, we're building a, we're building a long thing here. I have no idea if that was true. (laughs) Um, so, uh, and you may not know this, Mike, but, um, uh, primarily, uh, the I would say at least a third, if not more, if I, closer to half of my content is Malifaux related. Uh. And I kind of buried the lead a little bit because uh, you were uh, a, a fan of the game mm-hmm. um, and, and played it uh, pr- pretty competitively, if I understand correctly. Yes, not super successfully. Well, I did win a painting competition once, so there is that. <laughs> uh, I... So when I was getting back into, I guess around this time when I was, you know, playing these massive games of, of fantasy and I was dabbling with with other games and picking things up and having a look around, um, the miniatures for Malifaux caught my eye. I think I saw, um, I'm not going to remember his name right now, the little chap with the tentacle face who's holding an eyeball in metal. Yeah, cor- mm, uh, Corpulus? Corpelius. Yes, exactly. And I saw that miniature and I was like, my goodness, look at his little flashy tails uh, suit and his uh, and his little eyeball. I want to paint that miniature. And so I started picking up the Metal Manifold miniatures and painting them, and that was great. They were very, very intriguing, and every one of them is a unique delight to paint and, um, and, a, and a special little painting project all of its own. But the game was really eye-opening because in many quite, at least for me, from the games that I was aware of and had played, for me, in lots of really meaningful ways, it pushed the technology of skirmish games forward. And there was the obvious parts, like the card system. But then there was the really non-obvious parts, like the way that the tournament scene developed this pool mechanic, where you often took 100 Soulstones of models, and because of the way that the game setup was written, you didn't know until the very last moment, what the other person, like what you wanted to bring to, 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 you didn't even know which of the schemes you you were going to choose from. Right. And so you could look there, you could look at the terrain, you could look at your opponent's pool, you could look at the scheme pool, and you could make a bunch of really interesting at the table decisions about what your um, game plan was going to be. And that I think was why I fell head over heels in love with the competitive scene, because although all of that was beautiful when you were playing it at home like the crunch of doing that in an in in a competitive environment like with a bunch of people that 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 scene in the uk was actually it was filled with a lot of um really really awesome uh gamers who were all of a similar mindset so we were we were enjoying the crunchy um play but it was a it was a very it wasn't a very hectic or heavy scene that wasn't a super aggressive scene um and yeah, I just found that 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 pushed what was possible for skirmish games in my mind forward a lot, and I kind of fell and fell head over heels in love with that. Yeah, it's a good game. Uh, obviously, I've, it's how this podcast started was talking about Malifaux, and we still do. Um, and uh, if you have not looked at third edition, they made some interesting uh, advancements with third edition as well. Uh, but you might be a little bit busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, the other thing that I'm always curious about. So we we understand. Um, you know, Gaslines is out there. Was there anything once it was unleashed, once it started getting played by more than 300 people, was there anything that came back as far as 
videos that you saw, reviews that you saw, comments that you read that surprised you? Was there something that um, once it was fully out there in the public e- that either disappointed you or surprised you? Um, or was everything you were hearing what you expected? No, I mean, ev- everything Everything was new and completely unexpected. And I had, um, I don't know, that's it's a super interesting question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure because the... A few things happened. One was um, one was clearly that the hobby aspect exploded in a way that I hadn't really clocked. And I think the one thing I hadn't realised was Mattel already have an incredibly addictive loop that they provide with the way that they distribute their Hot Wheels cars. And I accidentally hooked into that yep. loop. And so... <laughs> Which I didn't know existed until I started playing Castlands. Well, but go and, ahead. <laughs> and um, one, thing, one thing that was really obvious was that I, uh, I find it very exciting when I go to a War Games store and I'm like, ooh, some things. Let me look at yeah. all the things. That's a very exciting moment. But you can't do that most of the time. And even when you go out to town with like your family, like maybe you sneak into the bookshop because they're like, ooh, some things. And with Gaslands, <laughs> like you're at the supermarket... And you're like, ooh, some things. <laughs> like, what you're there with your bacon and your eggs. And you're like, ah, some hobby thinking stuff can happen yeah. here. And that, I think, was really, um, that was more magical than I was expecting. And the way that the, um, the way that the community still reacts to that with the sort of, the fact that they can go, they can go snooping and hunting all over the place, I think is really, that surprised me. And I realized only months into the game being released that there was something quite, um, yeah, quite addictive and sticky about that. Um, and then I guess, uh, the other thing was, I realized that, uh, crumbs, if people like the game, I'm going to have to put more content out for it because I don't have a miniatures yeah. line. So how am I going to keep people interested? Um, and that I suppose led to, that led to, to releasing free downloads, which led to having more download numbers to show Osprey and say, look, people would be paying you money for this stuff if you had yep. put it in a book. So then we put it in a book. Um, very, very cool. Was there any point? Was it always Matchbox cars or was there ever a point, Mike, that you were tempted um, or Osprey was tempted to to make miniatures for this game? No, absolutely not. So the game itself, like uh, I, I didn't think of the Matchbox thing. That was Phil Smith at Osprey. So when he saw the oh, game, wow. when he saw the game, he said, I've always thought about doing a, a car game and I think it would be really cool to do with toy cars. And I was like, you're a genius let's do this immediately but i had been playing this game in a different scale i had written it for drop zone commander resistance buggies because i no kidding because I, I played a lot of the game boy uh, the game boy game um uh, micro machines when i was a kid i had a lot of micro machines but i was deeply in love with that video game and so when i started working on gaslands like that's just what came out of my brain was like micro machines on a breakfast table amazing and so we were playing it in sort of 10 mil or whatever that is um and it hadn't even occurred to me that you would play it with toy cars but isn't that funny <laughs> that's so man, wow um now and we're going to talk about billion sons um in a little bit but you know billion sons does not have miniatures right it's also a, a sourced game as well where people can bring their miniatures um is that is that something that you know i mean it's it's part of what people love about your games right but is it is it now what Mike does, or is there a day where you could imagine you having miniatures attached to one of your games? Um, I'm trying to get a sense of whether it's a mantra for you or not, or a signature. I, I mean, right now, and and why why Gaslands was like why Gaslands was published by Offspray is that then and now I have absolute total passion for writing games that are amazing i have absolutely zero interest in learning how they are published 
and and all the mechan all of the, the machinery of getting it out there other than the business of it yeah. yeah and so for me the idea of putting together a game that has a line of miniatures sounds like a massive ball and chain um yeah and uh, like as I do this as a hobby off the side of my normal uh, day job anyway, what I want is like the things that get me excited are sitting in the computer, getting the miniatures out, you know, drawing drawing all over my draft with a pencil and figuring all that stuff out. And so um, I think unless I change significantly in my, in my approach and I either, you know, retire into starting a, 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 a business that decides to make miniatures or I work in more of like a you know, I go and write games for other people who've got a miniatures line. I can't really imagine. I think, so it's not really a mantra, but it is just, it is just the way that I approach the hobby is I've always collected a bunch of grab bag of figures. And even those games that I talked about, you know, when I was a, when I was a teenager writing those, like there's a game that I have uh, in my ring bound notebook from that time, which is called Warfare. And it's a generic system for any miniatures from any period. And it has a tech level system, which I think I stole from Traveller. Um, and so I think that actually it's probably quite deeply ingrained with me that I just like, I like, I like the mechanical act of evoking a sense uh, and a feeling um, through the rules, but I guess I'm not, I don't seem to have any interest in like the creating of a fantasy world or a miniatures line or a, or an aesthetic, which is actually one of the things I've been super interested in um, as I've been getting to know the rest of the Blaster crews. Uh, Sean Sutter, Sutter who um, is the Relic Blade creator, is totally different to me because he's an artist. He considers himself an artist. He operates as an artist. He is every part of his... Um, product and process is connected together so he's listening to music he's drawing he's thinking about characters he's writing rules he's playtesting he's building models like all of that stuff is one ball of stuff that is all like you you he can't create without the art without the and like that's it's so amazing because it's totally different to what i'm i'm like i'm just like the rules the game the, the fun <laughs> yeah Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So like I mentioned, we're going to we're going to break into a billion suns. Um, and what I would be would like to know is, is there more for Gaslands or are we now making a transition? Mm, it's super interesting. So there is more for Gaslands quite imminently. So. Um, oh, wow. So uh, uh, a as I was finishing up on A Billion Suns and getting ready for the launch, I had realized that I hadn't written anything for Gaslands for a while. And I was starting to wonder and worry. I was starting to wonder whether or not I am a person who writes expansions for things or whether I write games and they are they're little objects. And, and once the Fabergé egg is finished, it's finished. Two, two different things, yeah. And as I sort of talked about that to some friends of mine, um, it's it's weird because a week later an an incredible idea occurs to me after like an 18 month drought on gasland stuff because i was like well i don't want to write any more weapons i don't really want any more um vehicles i don't really i've got done all the sponsors i really want to like i don't want bloat in the game i don't want to just put right. more in it for for the sake of having more in it and then this idea came to me about we just we just finished a a run of playing um uh oh fiddlesticks what's the name of that legacy board game that's like number one on the charts so there's, there's a pandemic legacy there's a risk legacy the, 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 the fantasy one where you're exploring a map uh gloomhaven gloomhaven yeah so we just finished um a run of playing gloomhaven and we were chatting about you know what is what what are legacy games and of course 
topic turns to you know the intersection between leg- legacy games and war games which is pretty pretty minor but it's something that we i toyed around with my with my 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 guys a couple times and it just boom it hit me like there was a way of writing a gaslands narrative campaign that could be a a, a legacy style campaign that would have a toy box filled with things and i think the the, the thing that opened that toy box for me was if you what if you had a, a what if you had a thing on the like a tool on the website where you could go to that tool and you would turn your get a new toy car turn it over write the name of the car into the tool and it would tell you what the stats of the car were and like that was oh, the beginning wow. of it yeah. so that and then from there it's like well okay so does that give me some kind of like unique upgrade path for that car okay so that's cool let's let's build that in and then because um we'd been playing this this sort of uh, gloomhaven um game as well i thought okay well let's let's have a go at writing a whole sort of movie arc as 10 scenarios where depending on what you do you get different clues you get different understanding of what the thing is maybe you can be a bit more of a good guy or a bad guy maybe there's two endings and i was like okay this is amazing yeah i can do it yeah and now i got right i got super excited about that so that's what is coming out in um blaster volume three is gaslands legacy which is a 10 uh scenario narrative campaign with a bunch of crazy um legacy mechanics in it so, Mike, when you play Gloomhaven or you play any other game, um, does Mike just play the games or is Mike the designer in there going, oh, this is interesting. That was an interesting choice that the designer made there. And I'm going to dissect this. Um, are you able to turn it off and just play Gloomhaven? Uh, it depends on the game. So if I had a good time, <laughs> I normally normally I don't in the moment. And if I start to get bored or irritated by the game, then analytical like playtest mic switches on and i can no longer engage with the game in a pure fun-based way so for example we i was feeling absolutely knackered last week and i was i i, I messaged the guys and was like actually i'm going to drop out of gaming I, I don't have the energy for it and then they started chatting and they were like oh we're going to play um i'm going to play seven wonders because none of us have played that uh does anybody can anybody explain it to us and i was like seven wonders i can explain that i'll play that any day of the week and i'm never going to be analytic and i wasn't analytical about seven wonders because just like um, yeah and it's not it's not perfect but it flies past in 15 minutes and it's absolutely glorious um whereas towards the end of the gloomhaven campaign uh i became quite uh grouchy and analytical <laughs> about that because i was like <laughs> like why is this just work like why am i having to work through these dungeons like each of these things is not like this blah 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 blah, blah. anyway i won't go to a, i won't go to a, <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun to play gloomhaven with you mike <laughs> well it was yeah it's also like it's one of those games where you you start it on the off chance that you're going to fall in love with it, and then you realise that maybe to to get the most out of it, you have to dedicate a large portion of your year to it. And because the because the actual experience of playing each dungeon is not as wonderful as I would like it to be for me, um, I was like, I, I I I want to stop doing this now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about something I'm not nearly as familiar about, but I'm already, I've watched a couple videos about it, and I'm anxious to talk about it. We're talking about the new game, A Billion Suns. We'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use Mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. 
Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So I remember when, and I think it was on Twitter, Mike, that I first like got whiff of of a billion sons. Um, and initially, um, it, it, I was like, "Hmm, this is interesting. I, I like what Mike does." And then there's there's certain gamers that are out there in, in the community that um, I'm friends with, that I've connected with through the podcast. Uh, a lot of them are either current or past Malifaux players, and they're they're people who, for me, I watch them because if they find something cool, I don't. I, that's a qualifier for me. I know that if James likes this game, that it's me. It's worth me spending some time and look at. And it was uh, it was through that that I first discovered about Billion Suns. So let's let's. Uh, there's, I'm sure the listeners aren't nearly as familiar with it as they are with Gasland. So very briefly, w- what is the two or three sentences that would help them understand what Billion Suns is? Yeah, so Billion Suns is a spaceship game. It's a game of interstellar fleet battles. So it's uh, not a dogfighting game. It's a it's a big capital ships game. But it's not a capital ships game like um, most others. So it's not a naval game set in space. It's um, an attempt to make the most science fiction-y game I can possibly make. And so what you'll find is a slightly mad game where there are multiple tables. You don't start with any ships in play. There are a bunch of different objectives that we call contracts, and you need to look at the contracts and start jumping in from your jump gates, the ships that you need to complete those contracts. And as soon as you start jumping in ships, your opponents, because it plays up to four people, can start jumping in ships to answer what you've just deployed. And so the game is a science fiction um, kind of, it's almost like a real-time strategy game in the way it unfolds. And so, and and it's a it's a it's a spaceship combat game and you will be blowing each other up in space but you'll also be trying to protect the little utility ships that have got to go and rescue the 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 people and bringing out um different recon ships to go and find things and of course then you've got to protect those recon ships with other ships and now there's other you know bombers coming out to take out the mid-level stuff that's supposed to be protecting those things and so there's a real combined arms uh flavor to the game but it's it's emergent from what you place on the table not necessarily um there's no force organization chart that you have to follow that tells you it's a command combined arms uh, game. It's all emergent. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, um, my Malifaux listeners um, are going, there's going to be aspects to billion sons that you are going to immediately graft onto because to, there's, there's things I see in billion sons that I love about Malifaux. Um, mm. and, and, and a lot of that is the reactive nature of it. And it's not just the, everybody goes, runs to the middle of the table and just starts shooting each other. Um, there's some very interesting complexities to it, but before we kind of launch into, you know, some of the mechanics and functioning of it, where did billion Suns start? Like at what point does Mike wake up one morning and say, you know what? I, I think I want to make a sci-fi spaceship game or where were the seeds? 
So I'm always writing games and they normally start as a couple of pages in the notebook because I've been inspired by a movie or I've been playing a video game or something and I want to see, or maybe I've bought a new miniature or something and I want to see that on the table. And I'd been messing around with, um, uh, I think I'd been messing around with Armada. I think that's where it came ah. from. I'd either been watching the new Star Wars films or I'd been messing around with Armada. And I'd been thinking about uh, Man of War because I'd been playing that um, for the first time in, in a while with some friends. And so I started drawing these little cards for Star Destroyers that had like, it was basically like a Star Destroyer Man of War sort of thing okay. where it had hit locations. And I started tinkering around with that and um, thinking about what a spaceship game might look like. Um, and... Then I guess, yeah, and then I guess it must have been walking out of um, The Last Jedi. I was just like, oh my goodness, I really want to do a spaceship game and hang on, quick double check. Yes, Osprey doesn't have a spaceship game. Let's see whether <laughs> Osprey wants a spaceship game because, oh my goodness, I really want to make a spaceship game now. And um, yeah, and Phil uh, Osprey had also just walked out of The Last Jedi and was like, yeah, like, I want a spaceship game. Let's do a spaceship game. <laughs> Um, so something good came of uh, of, of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> That's all right. I don't think I don't think these are. Yeah, I don't think these shots fired uh, at this point. <laughs> no, that, that 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 chamber emptied a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. Um, so. We learn about how Gasland starts, but it's a little bit different. It sounds like with Billion Suns. Now, did you put together the equivalent of the Dream Board, or, or did you put what were the initial your your goals? Um, did did you go through that same process here? So I, I did. I did what I did for Hobgoblin, the one that got rejected. I put together uh, as exciting as possible a two hundred word um, abstract that sort of said what this was like imagine kind of like a, a back of the book blurb for why it was going to be exciting and cool and I tried uh -huh. to pull out some mechanics that I thought were going to be amazing and unique about that because um, there was uh, I'd, I'd got I'd gotten we can talk about a little bit about the combat system but I got a really interesting idea about um, a, a combat system that used lots of different funny sided dice and then I wrote a chapter list to remind them that I knew how to write a rule book and to show them roughly what was going to be in there um, and then I attached the sort of playtest rules that I'd written that I think were about, you know, again, about six pages at that point. Um, yeah, and there was enough ideas in there and enough trust from Gaslands, obviously, for Phil to be like, okay, let's 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 do this thing because he he gets a lot of um, submissions from lots of places, and so he had he had a small pile of sort of spaceship games that hadn't excited him, um, but I managed to to tick enough tick enough boxes. Did Phil tell you what it was that push put you to the top of the uh, stack? No, he didn't actually. <laughs> we'll have to get Phil on the show and find out. Yeah, you should do. <laughs> you should definitely talk to him. He's a super interesting guy. Um, all right. So what's next then? So you you put that in front of Phil and you say, "Hey, Phil, here's what I'm thinking. Right here's here's 200 words that gives you kind of the look and feel. Um, here's six pages to kind of give you the the, the bones of this." Um, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the next step? Where, where does it start to mature? So the first thing that happened was a massive sinking sensation that like, this was going to be my difficult second album and I had everything to prove <laughs> and it, this was going to show that it was all a fluke. And everybody's going to say, yeah, but he did hit, he did make Gasland. So that was good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so there was that. And I guess quite early on, for the first few months, I still had no idea whether this was a mass battle game, whether this was a sort of sort of skirmish with 
capital fleet. I didn't really know what it looked and felt like. I had a couple of really um, clear images. Um, one of them was the Battle of Clendathu from the Starship Troopers movie. Um, oh wow! Okay, there's a there's a really chaotic space battle where just like tons of ships are sort of really closely packed together and then the bugs start shooting plasma from the planets and as they start taking out some of the ships all the ships start crashing into each other it's a massive disaster and total chaos and i just i knew that that was what i wanted my spaceship game to feel like and not what um watching a game of battlefleet gothic is like right. not that i dislike battlefleet gothic it's a really right. cool game and there's but lots of interesting things but like. battlefleet gothic already does it and lots of other games yep. already do it and so what i wanted was um oddly actually the one of the really influential things um was as i was thinking about that chaotic like it starts immediately and it's just like it's it's like a, it's like a hot start in a movie it's like boom right. straight into the action um you've probably played this a few times but maybe not as much as um a, a, as you would like to when you flip a joker in second edition and you deploy mm-hmm. blind mhm when I have played blind deployment in Malifaux, like amazing stories immediately happen. Like it's not a Very fair, true. it's not a fair game because like, you know, somebody, somebody will just pop out and, you know, your, your dude will just snip someone's head off and you're like, well, that, that wasn't fair. But <laughs> um, what blind deployment taught me is what happens if there's no deployment zones and stuff is just like blam everywhere. Um, and there was a randomness to that, which made it, I don't know, a little bit spicy, but so what I wanted to do initially was what if, um, what if we start with that idea and taking that kind of chaotic space battle and saying, let's throw away deployment zones. Let's start in the middle of turn two. Let's That's get cool. rid of all of that, like dum de dum de dum de dum moving forward, turn one rubbish. And that's like, that drove a lot of the early decisions and the early attempts to, to make something unique. Well, and it gives it a, a real cinematic feel, right? Like we, we you know, we, we when you watch a movie, you don't cut to the movie and you see everybody line their ships up and then they make everybody makes their first moves. It is. It's the the ships jump in and everything starts firing and going. So that's yeah, that's and, interesting. And, and and like narratively, although it's all made up, obviously, um, it seems to me like it, it's interesting because there's 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 hard military science fiction where ships do know about each other squillions mm-hmm. of light years away and they plod towards each other and everything is um uh, everything is known and sort of plans are made and it's very difficult to show them. And that doesn't, to me, feel like an exciting tabletop experience. Whereas in Star Wars, in Rogue One, like they're about to leave the planet and then like, boom, uh, yeah. Star Destroyer turns up and splat, everyone's bouncing off the hull. And like, that's what needs to happen. That's exciting. Uh, instantaneous, like that's a really science fiction-y thing that doesn't happen when two armies in the Dark Ages like slowly mark towards each other and know that they're going to have to amass on two hills. And so Deployment Zones makes a ton of sense when you're talking about you know black powder games or or dark ages games but you know if you can warp in and you've got jump technology and stuff like let's let's do more with it yeah and you know so so those listening um that's what happens in in million so you you literally place templates down and that's where your ships come out of and 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 it's a you go i go and you're reacting as you go right yeah that's right so the top of every turn there's no deployment phase in setup of the game and the top of every turn after you've assigned your command tokens which are basically a kind of battle board resource that you can use to tweak your turn later um anything that you've put in jump in then in the jump in stage um 
you spend your little your command tokens and jump in to sort of trade deployments and you can deploy jump points and you can start deploying battle groups but because you don't have to pre-plan any of your decisions what i decide to do you can then react to and you can not deploy something you can deploy it something else somewhere else or you can bring in a bigger group or bring in a um so it's interesting because when you when you initially choose where to put your command tokens on the board you have to look the other guy in the eye and try and figure out where he's going to deploy what she's going to bring in and if you haven't got enough tokens stashed there because you thought you were going to get a job done and you've pushed them all into the tactical area which is where you can make your ships faster and your guns better then you could get out deployed um but that's i guess where another element comes in which is when you deploy ships you essentially spend your victory points so the army points and the victory points are the same resource. Oh, I don't think I realize that. Okay. So you start with zero credits, and on turn one, you almost certainly go into deficit. So you, you're on, like, negative 15 credits because you brought in some battle groups of ships. And the objectives on the table, the contracts, uh, will throw revenue back at you. They will throw credits back at you. And so by completing the missions throughout the game, you're going to then push yourself back in, hopefully back into, um, into credit. Uh, but what that means is you've essentially got infinite reinforcements and the game tells you you can deploy anything you like but then asks you should you (laughs) (laughs) which creates a really interesting decision making i would imagine especially late game right yeah right because because you can you can dig yourself out of a difficult tactical situation by deploying more things but that might make your strategic situation worse because you just put yourself more in a hole but if you bet heavy enough, maybe you can clear out a whole area and actually just grab a bunch of objectives that rather than just half winning, you could maybe totally grab. And so maybe the risk is worth the reward. But then as soon as you commit that big ship, if you've got any jump tokens left, you're like, okay, I'm going to see you and raise you. And um, that's that creates a really interesting dynamic where players can bet light and they can bring in a little bit and they can capture a little bit and they can get out squeaky clean, um, yep. but in positive credits. Or, you know, you can bet heavy and just be like, well, I'm going to put auxiliary fire arcs everywhere and anywhere you try and go, I'm going to have I'm going to have lasers pointed at you. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a it's interesting because what I'm what I've ended up creating is a game that it's impossible to net list because there's no such thing because everything is, you know, everything is that decision at the, at the table that, and, and that decision can happen in turn two and in turn three. So let, let's talk, and we're not going to go in depth on this, Mike, but I do want to get a feel for it. Um, what excites you about the combat system? The thing that's the thing that I was scratching my head about really early doors because I thought, like, the thing that was exciting to me is the the ridiculous range of scales comparatively when you're talking about a sort of capital ship um, combat game, and so you want little tiny, teeny swarms of fighters, and you want like planet-sized, you know, battle barges and everything in between. And the weapons that are mounted on the A-Wing, like, you know, what do they do to a battle barge? Um, Except, of course, when you fly them into the bridge. And, (laughs) like, the ridiculously, you know, the the, the kilometre-long rail guns that, you know, take six hours to warm up but can destroy moons. Like, how on earth do they hit a fighter? But if they ever happen to, it's going to be squished. Um, and so that's what I was wondering about. How do you how do you manage that in a combat system? And what I came up with very early doors, and it's it's it survived almost unchanged from um, oh wow from the beginning of the, the design process to the end um, with, with one change, which was I flipped the direction in which the numbers go because uh, it made shield saves work better. Um, so I drew a I drew a spread of numbers from one to twelve. 
and then I coloured in the numbers um, in little sort of ranges for different ship classes. So I said, okay, well, let's say a fighter is like one and two, and let's say a battleship is like from six to 12. And so then you've got this really interesting relationship between the, the, the number of sides on a dice and the proportion, the percentage chance of hitting, where right. it's easier to hit a big ship with a D12, and it's harder to hit a little ship with a D12. Um, but it's, uh, but like when you, when you damage that ship, because D12s in this game do more damage, like if you do manage to hit like splurge, it's going to totally destroy it. So you ended up, I ended up with a system where the, the dice that you roll, um, directly impacts like where it, like what target you should point it at because a D6, um, a D6 is really hard to hit, um, it's, it, yeah, sorry, I'm not explaining this very well because uh, it's uh, Saturday afternoon and the caffeine just ran out. No, it makes sense though, right? So, so the the lower or smaller the die is, the better chance you have of hitting that one or two for the smaller ship. But the bigger the die is, the more likelihood you're you're or you're reducing the likelihood you have of getting the small ship. Am I yeah, capturing so, that right? Yes. Yeah, so if we look if we look at a if we look at a, a fighter that's got a, a a rubbishy little pew pew laser which rolls d6s um, and they only do damage one because d6s do one damage, d8s do two damage, d10s do three and d12s do five. So a d6, if I want to hit another fighter, which after after in the final game has a silhouette of three i need a one two or a three to hit the fighter so it's a 50 percent chance to hit a fighter with another fighter and if i do hit the fighter it's going to do one damage and uh that's 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 a significant to a fighter but insignificant to a larger thing if i want to hit a um uh a battleship which has he goes to his book to double check i think it's silhouettes 10 <laughs> <laughs> I normally have a piece of paper in front of me because I do. In our next segment, we're going to learn the rules. <laughs> hey, I know all the rules from all the versions of this game simultaneously. I don't know which one I, is the last I one. Bet you don't know how, where, where it ended, right? I was, I was actually right in Silhouette 10. So I can, I can roll any number from 1 to 10 on a D6 and hit. So obviously there's only 1 to 6. But there's also a rule called dud, which means if you roll the highest number on any shaped dice, that's a that's a fail. So a 6, a six is a fail, but... I can roll a d6, a 1, a 2, a 3, a 4, a 5. They're all within the hit spread of the battleship. The 6 is a dud. So it's really easy. It's a barn door. Of course I can hit it. But then the shield save system comes in, which is the battleship then picks up the same dice that just hit him and rolls it to try and get under its save. And in the case of a battleship, it has like a shield of 6. So unless it rolls a 6, it's like instant saved as well. Whereas a, a much smaller ship might have a shield value of 1 or 2. So... The relationship between how large the target is, how many sides there are on the dice, and what your shield value is very constructs into this really like pretty elegant sort of um, not very many steps to to resolve the ridiculous disparity of scales in spaceship games. But at the same time, little pew pew ship has a chance, right? It Always has, a, has chance. a chance. Yeah, yeah, which is very very cool. That's interesting. Um, so similar question with Gaslands. Was there was there a moment in the uh, iterations of Billion Suns that um, you added or took something away that you think um, had a big impact on the finished product? Yeah, there's a there's a few. So this game was a little tinker to get right. Um, oh, okay, and more so than more more than Gaslands was. Yeah, Gaslands was a sort of chaotic fun ride where things were fun and we kept making them more fun, and then we were like, could, "You're fun, but could you be funner?" Whereas Billion Suns was like a 
desperate slog through the muddy jungles of deepest Peru. It was like there were points, quite a few points during the development of this game where it was genuinely unpleasant experiencing uh, a game of Billion Suns. And that's because it had all these high concepts which were brutally difficult to make fun. So the idea of bring the idea of buying in ships, the idea that you can deploy anything that you like, um, the idea that you're making, you know, it, all of these things, all the, the idea that you can put anything anywhere, like the the scope for exploitation uh, of canny and like crunchy players, and I had a couple in my group, um, was causing the game to be easy to make not fun so by by playing in it by playing in a specific way you could make the game really really unpleasant for all the other players on the table and in some respects you could have said well okay that is some edge cases there but i'm just gonna i'm just gonna have to live with that like but that isn't the way we do things around here like the game has to be the game has to be fun even if you are kicking it in its in its ribs um really really hard and one of the things that was really obvious to me in a game about you know should i spend money to bring a ship in you know am i being you know am i being am i being checked for by the auditors about having spent too much money on ships to get the job done it seemed really obvious that if you blow up other people's ships you should probably get some money for that and if you jump some ships back out again you should probably get the money back because you took them back to the home base and so you kind of didn't you know you didn't have to you didn't have to lose them and so Both of those ideas felt very uh, intuitively right, and in terms of the actual gameplay, were horribly difficult to make work. So so much so that we just pulled them right back out again after a long and arduous process. Because what it turned out was it it wasn't obvious, but it ended up with a really really um, snowbally winner takes all kind of effect. Where if you deployed a lot and you captured the sort of the control, the board power, then not only did you win the objectives, you also eliminated the other ships, which then gave all of theirs. And it was just like zoom. It just like, it totally um, sent the, sent the dials spinning off in the wrong direction. So tearing that out, even though it felt like it should be in there meant that the only thing that mattered was, are you completing your objectives? Are you doing those contracts? And it doesn't matter whether I bet heavy or I bet light, because if I bet heavy in the old system, it was like, I'm giving you a bunch of potential victory points. And the other thing that was really, really ugly about that, and one of the reasons that that the game was so unpleasant, was that every time somebody placed a new battle group, the victory point calculation in every player's mind had to be changed. And they were like, oh, okay, so we thought there were 30 points left, but now he's put those that are actually 42 points. So now can I put this down? And it just became work to figure out what was the right strategy or what was available to you. Um, So that was another reason that that came out. There was another big chunk, which is a, a sort of, I have a white whale, which is, uh, I have several white whales actually, but <laughs> one of them is making an AI system fun in a in a war game, and uh, there is quite a fun one in Perilous Tales, which is a, a game that's still in beta that you can download for free off uh, PlanetSmasherGames.com. But in this game, because I, I I started the development process thinking this was kind of going to feel like a, a, a real time strategy game, it's going to feel like Command and Conquer, it's going to feel like Warcraft. Um, so initially, I, I wanted you to deploy ships and then sort of tell them what to do, and then they would beetle around just doing their thing, and that, that essentially you wouldn't get to directly control them. You would get to instruct what their missions were, but they would then be Program off. and go, right. Yeah, exactly. Which in a video game is totally cool and really fun. Yep. 
And it just is stupid, and I don't know why I keep doing it, because what happens is you have some interesting decisions, and then you have a bunch of, like, moving ships in an automated way where it's just, like, work. And I tried, like, four different ways of making that system work before I just realised, Mike, stop it. Stop it. Let the players push the toys around. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) Um. Was there or have there been now that, um, you know, that it's out there? It's the same question we did with Gaslands. Has there been anything that surprised you about uh, the reception of the game? Or is there a way that you've seen the game played that you didn't anticipate uh, or feedback you didn't anticipate? Um, it, I, I mean, it, we're a couple of weeks in, so it's still quite early doors. I think as the like the game got delayed a couple of times um, due to some some production issues. And so the second time it got delayed, I thought, okay, I thought I was done with the editing of this game. I'm just going to release it. I'm going to re-release yeah. it for playtesting because we got more time. Let's find some more bugs with it. And so what happened was there's a bunch of people who played it relatively recently before it came out and they were available in the community ready to just sort of jump in and be ambassadors for this weird game because when people are jumping into it and they're um, they're looking at it for the first time, they're like, what? Multiple tables? What? No no army lists? What? Like, what is going into negative victory points? What is all this madness? And having a community of people who've played it recently and like, yes, it's, it's kind of strange, but here, here's, here's how it works. And actually, there's some interesting things here, um, particularly because um, they've played it in a way that's probably like they, they may have played it post uh, pre-lockdown in a way that's like humans have played each other rather than just trying right. to play the solo rules that are available to download. Um, so that's that was one awesome thing. I think the other thing that surprised me is um, one of the things that John, uh, my friend that won't let me make things that aren't cool, said yeah. was like, you're the Gaslands guy, Mike. What is the scratch-built spaceships thing that you're making true for this game? And I scratched my head and I scratched my head and I genuinely didn't really know the answer to that because you can scratch built spaceships but i don't want to do it it's kind of kind of a hassle lego is kind of fun that's cool but you know building having enough little bits to make micro spaceships in lego is kind of a yeah it's a it's a it's a white whale of its own um and and what emerged really obviously from the community quite early on um last year was um 3D printing spaceships is kind of easy. And so a lot of people are getting into printing, um, particularly over the last year. I think it, from 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 what I can see, a lot of friends of mine are sort of picking it up in a way that they weren't even thinking about it three years ago because the prices sure. just crashed down. But the thing that's interesting is that 3D printing spaceships, you can go into a 3D um, design program and you can put some squares together and you can sort of make a credible spaceship quite easily. And so what has been really interesting is watching people take their first steps into miniature design in a hobby <laughs> Isn't way. That interesting? Because it's really easy. Like, nobody's going to learn to sculpt a beautiful face or like an actual human figurine is a whole right. art of its own. But yeah, you can stick some sort of primitive boxes. You can make in. a tube and a square. and Yeah, a tube and a square and a pyramid and jobs are good. Yeah. Well, and that that leads to my uh, last question about Billion Sons, which is it's obvious how to source Gaslands, right? You Mm. go to the grocery store, you pick up some things. Now there's companies out there that have put out bits for your game and things Mm. like that to stuff to, 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 to get to the hobby aspect of it. If I don't have a 3D printer, what, what, what's my sourcing, uh, for miniatures for Billion Sons? Yeah, so um, I provide a helpful page on the Billion Suns website. So if you hit up a billionsons.space, who knew that was a URL? Uh, <laughs> billionsons.space, you'll you'll see a 
Bayship's miniatures link in the menu. Um, and so what I've done is collected all of the places that I have found um, that are still producing and uh, and making uh, starship uh, spaceship miniatures. And there are a ton of different places. And, um, you know, if you want really, really well-engineered, easy-to-put-together plastic kits, you know, you can go to something like Drop Fleet Commander and, and provide, you know, astonishingly good miniatures from there. Yeah, they're beautiful um, miniatures. All of the miniatures in the book are from Brigade models in the UK. And I love um, Tony at Brigades. I love his sculpts because they've got a real Chris Foss sort of 70s retro vibe to them. And so when they all amass on the table, they feel like something very different to Battlefleet Gothic and something very different to Drop Zone Commander. Um, yeah. But of course, you can also dig into a bunch of licensed ranges as well. So, you know, you can play Star Trek. You can play with Star Wars Armada. Um, very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. So one last thing we're going to talk about is Blaster, which I think is a really neat project that you're involved in. So we're going to take a quick break and talk about Blaster. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So let's talk about um, what could be the Justice League of game designers <laughs> that's going on with Blaster. So for those that uh, are not familiar with Blaster, it's a, um, uh, what is the uh, release schedule for Blaster? How uh, do you guys have a schedule? That is top secret. Okay, top secret. So we have a periodical, <laughs> a digital periodical that comes out and it's devoted to miniature games. Um, uh, but it's it's got a very interesting stable. So um, where did this idea come from? Joe McCulloch. Okay. So he sent, he shot me an email almost out of the blue. Um, he lives, he actually lives quite near me. Um, although he is an American and he was in Oxford when he was working for Osprey, he now lives, uh, down near me in Kent. And, um, he shot me an email and he said, I got this idea. And broadly speaking, what he'd sort of noticed was there was a, a, a few indie game developers that he was kind of aware of and was playing the games of that are, that we were all putting out rules, free rules, you know, cheap, cheap expansions. And he was like, hmm, I wonder if we could combine forces and use all of, you know, put all the, the passion and the energy that we're putting into our own things, but just our forces combine um, and particularly introduce players of one game to players um, of another game and and so on. And that was fantastic. And we sort of gathered together with that as a, an idea, a sort of a reason to get started but then what emerged actually was it was actually a really incredible sort of crucible and support group and so over the last year and a bit of hanging out with those guys almost once a week um it's been really inspirational it's been incredible to have other people who are doing indie games design 
uh, miniature wargame indie design and 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 bounce ideas off them and be inspired by them and play test their their things and so on so yeah and get and get di- different methods right and different perspectives and, and and things like that yeah totally because uh, like i've got i've got my own particular you know foibles and biases and um each of the each of the designers in that in that gaggle has very different approaches and very different um opinions on some things and so that's really you know yeah it's 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 pleasingly challenging and there's lots of great debates and we're trying to um increasingly broadcast some of those debates so we're we're doing a again not a hundred percent on any particular time scale but we try and get together as a gang and broadcast on on youtube and facebook so you can pick up from um ash barker's gorilla miniature games channel he started putting let's talks up there where we we talk as a gang about particular game design topics yeah, it's and it was funny before we uh, we went live. That's one thing I talked about how I just got done uh, a few days ago watching that conversation between you and Ash. And it was very fascinating to hear the two perspectives um, going through it. And um, and then, you know, to have that collected in a magazine um, uh, format um, is very interesting. So was Billion Sons developed um, while you found yourself in this support group in this little mini community that this magazine has put together? So Billion Sons uh, was handed over to um, Offspray like the tail end of 2019, just as we were getting started with Bla- or like the Blaster Gang getting together. So and then it just got caught in production delays for a while. Um, so that like yeah, so sort of Gas Sons refueled and a Billion Sons were kind of they were in the past as I was walking into this situation, and so it was kind of interesting because. Um, like I said, I'm not certain I'm the kind of guy that expands his games a huge amount. Um, and so what I was really excited about initially was, ooh, I can find, I have maybe a vehicle to publish a bunch of, you know, smaller ideas, like things that maybe I can't get a full res- release for or don't need a full release, but like miniature skirmish game ideas that can can have their own, uh, have their own life inside this periodical. Has there been an impact? So now that you've been part of this blaster community and this blaster process, uh, has there been an impact on you as a designer? Um, I mean, very practically, yes, because I'm 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 being kind of, you know, cajoled and forced to create content, perhaps you know, faster than I than I would have if I was just cajoling myself. Um, right. But I think also the um, the experience of working on um, Mystic Skies for volume two was incredibly impactful because um i was pitching a couple of potential ideas for volume two and that was one of them something that i actually already pitched a couple of other places and, and not found a home for uh as a published game and sean sutter sort of caught on this idea of flying carpet riding wizards and was like Ooh, and started getting really inspired and, and just just the, that night after we'd had the conversation like I, I went to bed because it was it was late for me, but it was just sort of beginning of um, of the morning for him. And so, by the time I woke up, he'd already sculpted two miniatures of wizards on flying carpets. And I was like, "Dude, we're doing this, aren't we?" He was like, "Yeah, let's do this." <laughs> and that's really interesting because he works yeah. in such a different way that the 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 relationship through the development of um, Mystic Skies, which was also ludicrously condensed because I only had three months to basically write a new tabletop game from soup to nuts, and um, <clears throat> Having his input and having those conversations about not just what the game was going to be like, but like what the world was going to be like and what character decisions there was going to be, it was very new and very interesting and quite challenging. It was it was cool. 
Well, and I would imagine that um, there, how do I put this? It's one thing um, for you know, your normal paths that you had for, for Gaslands and for uh, Billion Suns for you to, you know, find stuff that, that ignites and fires the um, uh, fires, the excitement in that group. Now you've got a whole, a whole new group, right? And it, and it's got to have, have different, does it, well, let me ask the question. Is there, is there a difference in ex- putting something in front of Ash or Mr. Sutter and, and, and them getting excited about it? Um, does that tell you something different or is it just a new group? Um, is there something unique about having, having this stable as, as a, uh, as a bounce, a bounce against point? Yeah, there, there, there is compared to, um, so Glenn and John have their own particular approaches to the hobby and, um, someone like, someone like Ash, who's played so many games so over many the games. last 20 years, like he also has a very different take on things. And Joe McCulloch's sort of take on wargaming is really different to mine in terms of like, like I was saying, the way that I sort of enjoyed Malifaux was to get crunchier and crunchier and really enjoy the interlocking elements of that. And I don't really play a sort of fluffy war game where it's more like, you know, you might even maybe need a GM and stuff. Like, that's just not how wargaming works for me. Whereas, like, that's just, that is just where um, Joe McCulloch comes from. And it's really, it's really evident in his games design um, that it's kind of, you know, it's sort of like it emerges from Dungeons and Dragons. It doesn't emerge from uh, necessarily like, um, you know, Going go, well, going all the way back, it doesn't emerge from uh, from um, General Custer's stand in uh, Battle of Little Bighorn by Waddington. So yeah, so that's really interesting because I will throw out what something that feels like almost a truism, and Joe or Ash will just be like, "Well, I'm going to kind of call BS on that because I don't I don't mind if that that's a bit wobbly or I have to discuss that at the table. Like that gives me freedom. I'm like, well, okay, okay, okay." <laughs> Now, how about you as being the not the designer, but you being part of that audience? Um, how has that been having designers throw stuff at you? Yeah, that's 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 super exciting. It's sort of like it's weird because we sort of oscillate within our own group to being like fanboys of each other and then <laughs> critics of each other. And like that can happen within a 10 minute period. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's like sometimes you're just like, oh, I get to sit on this call. This is amazing. And then other times you're like, this activation mechanic is just ridiculous. What, how do you even think about this? So, yeah. I, how do we even print your name on the magazine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and it's obvious um, that some friendships are being born through this process. And you can see that anytime I see the interactions with you guys uh, online with the videos you put out and, you know, and the, the conversations you're having, which is very cool. So, Mike, um, let, let's put out the obvious plug so if someone who did not know about Gasland, someone who did not uh who's been piqued their interest in billion suns where do they need to go so uh if you are interested in any of my games you can head over to planetsmashergames.com um where you'll find links to everything and you'll find some uh free beta versions of games that have not yet uh, reached paper uh, releases um if you want to learn more about gaslands you can head up gaslands.com where you will find tons of stuff uh, loads of downloads loads of design um, blog articles if you want to hear my ramblings um at sort of analyzing my own process and if you want to learn more about a billion suns i mentioned it already but a billion space 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 
And um, <laughs> particularly on a billion suns dot space, you will find uh, free downloadable solo rules so that in this time of cholera, you can, uh, if you are unable to hang out with other gamers in person, you can um, you can fly your spaceships around uh, against some independent contractors and pirates who will try and frustrate and uh, ruin your game plan for you. And where can we get the magazine? And Blaster uh, is linked on all of those previously mentioned sites and uh, the, it is uh, available through Drive Through RPG. So that's where you will find it. And uh, because it's available through Drive Through RPG, you can order that digitally or you can get it print on demand. Uh, volume 2 came out uh, just before the end of the year. And Volume 3, which has Gasland's Legacy in it, among some other exciting, exciting things like an entire, um, an entire black powder fantasy um mud-based uh mass battle game from sean from sean sutter called sludge um is in there as well playable right out of the book and if you're into gaslands um go and check out uh, volume one of blaster because in volume one of blaster there was a um an entire new game mode called uh, martian racing federation where you I did not know about this you cut the wheels off your hot wheels cars and you make them sort of hover car pod racing things and it's playable. It's actually playable completely out of volume one of Blaster. You don't need Gaslands to play it, but you will need the templates because what happens is you lay out your templates in this long, crazy road and all of the cars go exceptionally quickly. And um, yeah, so yeah, Martian, <laughs> Martian Racing Federation in Blaster volume one. Very cool. Well, Mike, all of that stuff is going to be linked in the show notes. For those that are listening, want to grab onto that stuff. I appreciate it, my friend. It was really nice to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Craig. Real good. Wonderful. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here... Might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.